guys. Welcome back to Tap That Easy Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Walters. In this episode, I get to chat with one of my favorite beer writers, Joshua M. Bernstein. He just released his fifth book, Drink Better Beer. And as part of this episode, Josh is going to be giving away a book to one lucky Tap That Easy listener. Check our, our uh, social media posts for this on Instagram and Facebook to see how you can win. So we're going to announce a winner on Friday, November 15th, 2019. So once again, go to Instagram or Facebook to see how you can enter to win a copy of Drink Better Beer. This is the first remote podcast I've done, so the audio isn't as good as it usually is. However, Josh is a great storyteller and an awesome guest, so you might not even notice. So let's get into this conversation with Joshua M. Bernstein. All right, so my guest today is Joshua M. Bernstein, food, travel, spirits, beer journalist, right? That kind of covers covers yeah. that part of it, right, Josh? I mean, all the fun things, yeah. all the fun things in life, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but you're also uh, a consultant, a tour guide, event producer, and established author. Yeah, right? that's that's somehow you know the new and exciting. Yeah, I fit a lot under one umbrella. It feels like on there too, and I mean that's really the fun of. <laughs> Of being able to run your own business and do your own thing, there's nobody says you can't do it because you're the boss of yourself. So if you believe you can do it, you can do it. And then if you're not good at it, hopefully you'll get better at it later on. And so, yeah, it's been. A, yeah. I think it feels like every day I'm adding something new. To my, like, what was it last week? We figured out how to get buttons from China. So now I'm a now I'm an enamel button producer and then stickers too. So it's just <laughs> uh, you just you learn these skills as the need pops up. Yeah, yeah. Well, dude, you're you're adding to that list, right? And I said established author, uh, and I said that's something new, but it's not something new. And we'll dig in that in, in a minute. Uh, but you just put out your fifth book, right? Yeah, fifth book. It's kind of wild, beer? you know. Yeah, if yeah. I told myself, uh, told myself when I was a little kid to have five books under my belt by the time I was, you know, forty-one years of age, I would have been like, "You're lying." But it it happened, and it's uh, you just you just keep doing something, you do it again, and um, next thing you know, you got five books, and uh, it's that moment where your parents got really excited for your first book, and now your fifth book, they're like, oh, great, Josh has another book out there. I'm like, no, I worked really hard on this, mom and dad, and, but yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's that's awesome. Well, so let's let's go back, like as far as because pretty much everything you do. I mean, I know you cover food, spirits, travel, uh, but a majority of it is is beer, right? Like craft beer. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty cool to be able to, um, you know, follow craft beer and its sort of a third wave rise. You know, I mean, like a lot of people, I started off. You know, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. We drank a lot of uh, Bush Light 30 packs in my backyard if my parents went to bed. I mean, you know, beer was beer. It was kind of like the juice that got you through the night that brought the fun times. And uh, followed through in college where we went to Ohio University down in Athens where we drank a lot of, you know, 30 racks of natural light and natural ice and all that stuff too. And I mean, you know, I think beer for me for the longest part was just – it was just an accessory to fun or the fun in and of itself – but one of the cool things where I went to college at down in Athens was um, back in the mid to late 90s, I had a brew pub there called O'Hoolies. And O'Hoolies was one of the uh, kind of like uh, like so much like so many of the brew pubs in America back then. You had a lot of, um, you know, you had your brown ale, you had your pale ale, you had your fruited thing. And like every color under the rainbow, you could have that in beer form and a lot of British inspired stuff and things like that. But the cool thing about O'Hoolies is that they had a thing called Power Hour 
where for uh, every night for one hour, all the beers and pints were $1. So even if you were a, a broke college kid like I was, who was used to going to the greenery, a bar where they had quarter draft night, $1 for a pint of amazing <laughs> beer, I mean, it, I, I mean, it's a no-brainer. So we'd go there and, of course, being you know, 20, 21, drinking you know, four or five pints in an hour, you just stack them all up and try. But I think during that sort of like those moments of excess, you start to understand that flavor was uh, – was something a bit more out there too. And so you start, I started paying attention a bit more to the beers. And back at this point, you know, in Ohio, we had Great Lakes, you know, Bell's up in Michigan. And there were a number of other um, small breweries in Ohio at the time too. And I think Marietta, Chilcothy, maybe uh, Zanesville. So we had all these great little breweries popping up there. And it was a really great introduction to what beer was from a person who didn't have a lot of money. And but had a lot of interest and curiosity in the world. And, you know, for my background, I went to school for journalism. So I consider myself a, a writer first and foremost. And then you know, back in high school, I made zines by hand, stole copies from Kinko's and Staples and did that all together. But I went to school for magazine journalism, which is basically a glorified nothing degree. I mean, it's like, <laughs> the things the things you do back then, <laughs> I don't know, you, you come out of the school and you get this degree, but it's but it doesn't really teach you anything. I think we wrote maybe a handful of features in four years, a couple of query letters to magazines, and that was it. And you kind of come out there in the world, and you're like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I think what, what I did have was kind of a curiosity about the world around me. So then uh, I ended up, after a road trip kind of fell apart, I ended up in New York City living in Astoria, Queens, Halloween uh, 2000. And like a lot of other people, I did what you do when you're 22 and you're on your own for your first time. I went to a lot of bars and drank. And so the thing about yeah. <laughs> the thing about New York City, I mean, even back, I mean, everybody always thinks that New York City is this insanely expensive town. And don't get me wrong, it is in a lot of ways, but it also has this kind of high-low divide where you're able to, you know, you can have your $1,000 truffle top burger, whatever, or you can go get dollar dumplings and go to a dive bar and pound you know, cheap beers and gin and tonics, which we did. And then uh, yeah. so I started kind of exploring the scene and exploring all the bars. And I had, I think, only like a, a quick pit stop, my only full-time job. I spent nine months working at a, uh, you know, a porn publishing company as an editor, writing, uh, you know, hot chocolate cuddles, interviewing porn stars, all this crazy stuff, which I thought was a hilarious job. And it pretty much, <laughs> pretty much was a hilarious job. But I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where you do, and then you're you think it's pretty funny, and then you start doing it for a bit more. And for me, it just wasn't really, you know, I did not foresee myself as being forty years old and working working in porn. We'll put it we'll put it like that too. If, they, if, you, yeah. if you if you're listening and you are, more power to you. We all find our journeys in life, and we go there. But um, yeah, our offices were below. Uh, I told the story a bit before. Our offices were below um, Canal Street on Broadway uh, in Chinatown of Manhattan, and then. Uh, Went to work one September 2001 and the train stopped and then uh, got out and watched the towers fall and couldn't get to work that day. Couldn't, couldn't get to work for about eight more days. And then by the time I got back to work, my boss was like, blah, 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 Joshua, terrible tragedy, you know, smoke smoldering. The city's a wreck. Have to show your ID just to get to work. And she's like, that was a terrible tragedy. You have to take it out of your vacation time. And I was just like, well, then. I was like, maybe I shouldn't be working for this company. And so I started looking for a new job. My boss started spying on my computer. And then I came to work after lunch one day. And then she, uh, everything is wiped off my computer. Nobody in the small office was talking to me. So I thought to myself, 
I'm going to get fired from a porn job. I don't know. I think to me, I thought it would be the sad. I was like, I, I'm like, I'm not going out like that. I'm not going to get fired at this job. So uh, I got called in the office. And I, was like, I was like, I quit. I put in my two weeks notice, which, you know, of course, takes all the wind out of your boss's like angry sales. And then I got, uh, you know, so I put in my two weeks notice. I got uh, the last, my last two week paycheck. And I got another two weeks. I got sent out the door. And I'm like, well, what the heck am I going to do now? And so that was uh, I think probably around November 2001. So I started, uh, I was like, I should really make the writing happen. So I started uh, temping as temp agent, at being a receptionist, working all these crazy odd jobs, worked at Gap one day, headquarters, putting tennis balls in a dryer to make their clothes like rumpled and worn in. I delivered like $100 million checks to treasury departments and things. It was just whatever random odd job I could have in New York city. And we'd get enough to really go out yeah. to the dive bars and go out and have some drinks. Cause you know, still being 22, 23, you want to run around experience the city. And then I was like, I, you know, a lot of people were following me along on my journeys. I'd tell people we should go here and there. And I've always been one to have these outlandish ideas. You know, I, well, let's drive across country and go to Burning Man. Why don't we do these? Why don't we go to Mexico? We don't have we have on 150 bucks stuff like that. And if you're enthusiastic <laughs> enough, I've found that people will follow along with you. <laughs> so what ended up happening is I started pitching eventually um, newspapers, magazines about going to bars, and then I got one gig after the next, and another gig, and next thing I know, I'm basically reviewing bars, which is also a pretty amazing job when you're 23 years old. And so I started reviewing bars in New York city. And then the cool thing there was you would have, I mean, this sounds so mythical now, but we'd have expense accounts. You could actually get, they would actually pay you to write and give you expense accounts. So you could expense drinks, which was just crazy. So instead of having to drink, yeah. you know, two buck, whatever Schlitz is or something like that, we were able to really, I was like, Oh, why not drink this Bay Republic hop rod rye? Why not get these crazy stone beers why not get all these other things? So I started really exploring all of the uh, beers that were possible. And the, and, the, and the cool thing about New York City, too, is that we've got all these bodegas, you know, little corner stores where you get your toilet paper and cat food at 3 a.m. and get a sandwich to go. But the bodegas had pretty solid de or decent solid selections of beer, and you could buy one beer at a time. So I go to these bodegas and, you know, with a buck 50, buck 75, try all these, you know, Victory Prima pills, you know, Dogfish and 60 Minute. So you'd be able to try all these beers on really a, uh, on a pretty small budget. So I started getting more into the flavors of these beers. So I started writing about the breweries. And I mean, you know, from there, I mean, I like to say it was a straight shot, but it's not. It was like 13, 14 years ago. But just kept writing. I got a, <laughs> yeah. I got a gig for a Gourmet Magazine when they went online for a bit, being their beer writer, a magazine called Imbibe. Literally, I had an ad on something called Media Bistro, which was kind of a, a media site for – it's like a media gathering site for journalists and people in the field. And I put an ad up on the message board for maybe two months. And then Imbibe Magazine contacted me. And then that was the only time – I got one gig out of that. Then Imbibe contacted me, and that was you know 13 years ago. I've been working for them ever since. And so working for Imbibe, which is a drinks magazine out of Portland, Oregon, steering their beer coverage for them pretty much ever since then. And so I really was able to dive in and see that beer world was not just about these crazy flavors. It was about all the people and these ideas and folks putting their uh, you know putting their second career on the line, third career, homebrewers gone pro, and all these really great narratives for journalists for writers really started falling in place for me. So I started writing more about um, 
more about the breweries. And it was, uh, you know, you don't, luck doesn't happen. You make your own luck. Um, and for New York Press, which was an alt-weekly I worked for, I had a weekly column, which is basically follow along as Josh gets drunk and gets fat going around New York City. And so I used to write that every week. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I'd write about we'd go into brewery tours, Captain Lawrence. We'd bike right out to Blue Point or something like that. We'd bike 50 miles and go drink beer, then go take the train back home and drink more beer. So all these sort of, you know, going these exploits became sort of like uh, investigations into what was happening in beer in America. And then uh, one day back in 2009, I uh, got an email from Sterling Publishing and they literally found one of my stories in the New York press on the subway. And then they read the story. They go, this guy should write a book about beer. <laughs> and that was, so they reached out to me, yeah, asked me, nice. asked me to do a book about stouts. Um, which I would have done because whatever you get asked to write a book, all right, great, validating all my hard work. And this is like nine years in New York City at that point. And then the more we thought about it, that was not the right approach for the book. So they had me, um, yeah. So I pitched something, what became Brood Awakening, which is really the story, a journalism driven take on the story about how America got to this point. Less about the incipient days of, you know, Jim Cook and, you know, Ken Grossman, but more about what had been happening over the last five or 10 years and where it's going. And, how it was influencing not just America, but breweries around the, around the world too. And then yeah, from there it's off and running and then you know, one book, two books, three, four, five. And uh, yeah, beer, beer has become really the, uh, the focal point of a lot of my work out there at, at the core. I've always been a, uh, I've always been a writer and I'm really lucky and privileged to be able to write about beer in such a fun way. Yeah, dude, for them to come to you and say, hey, we want you to write a book like, well, and and I'm sure they they cover a lot of the things like so because we we just sent our book to the publisher or the printer. Um, but we did everything. We didn't have a publisher. We we have a friend, a uh, friend of a friend who owns a publishing company. And he was like, dude, you guys just need a printer. You got everything lined up. It's a lot of work, man. Yeah. It's a lot of work. And, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so. You just need a printer. Now, we're going we're gonna to store your books. I mean, that's the thing, too. I mean, some people are always like, oh, you should just, should just you know, self-publish. I'm like, do you know, my books weigh about 2.4 to 2.8 pounds, like, across that. <laughs> yeah. If I have a box of 30, like, two boxes of, like, 28 books in there, too, that takes a lot of space. Can you imagine getting a 1,000 copies of the book and having to store it somewhere and then sending them out one at a time? It's a pain in the butt. Publishers, yeah. publishers, there are, you know, there are pluses and minuses to everything altogether, but the production process, I mean, yeah, you need a team behind you, man. It, it helps out in a big way. For sure. For sure. So, well, so you started, they approached you about writing you'd, or about doing the book. You'd already been writing. Um, you were also doing, I, I'd heard from uh, my friend Dave from, from the job shop beer co here in tempe arizona um about you did uh homebrew tours yeah is that what is what's the homebrew tour yeah that was these, a bunch of made-up words we stuck together and people you know, came along on them so essentially the homebrew tour was this um it's all back to like so basically back around 2008 my friend sean white who now owns a really killer brewery in athens ohio called little fish doing farmhouse sales he and his uh then girlfriend now wife clarissa they want to do a uh a tour of homebrewers homes in uh, Brooklyn. So we're going to do it by bike. And so Sean was president of New York city's homebrewers guild, knew all these brewers. So we started going around on bike to these different homebrewers homes and drinking all their beer. And it was great fun until the idea of having, you know, 10 to 20 people on bike riding around and uh, drinking beer was not the best idea. <laughs> so after a while, like we should just walk our bikes afterward, but then, you know, 
the next year, the folks in New York City, uh, they're they running New York City Beer Week at the time. We're like, oh, who wants to do any events for New York City Beer Week? And I was like, hey, Sean, do you care if I do this homebrew tour? And he's like, yeah, go for it. They've moved away by then. So the idea was as such that uh, you go to different homebrewers' homes, you get to try their beer, and you go on to the next. So it's almost like a roving, voyeuristic house party. And you know, the first one we did was in fall 2009. So this year is actually the 10th anniversary of the homebrew tours. And nice. so I somehow convinced four people. Because, you know, you're talking about an unproven concept. You're basically going up to brewers and being like, hey, dudes, we're going to go bring strangers into your home to drink your beer. And then you're not going to know them and you don't know me. And then we're going to go, does that sound okay? And so, <laughs> yeah, it took some convincing. We got four people. We, you know, we got 25 people on the tour. We did subways, went around the city. We had a barbecue. We did four stops, eight hours. It was nuts. By the end of it, I was like, wow, that was a great idea. I'm never doing it again. But I got these emails, like, when's the next four? And I was like, huh, maybe we should do this again. And at this point, we really started seeing the uh, New York City um, homebrewing had really started taking off in a bigger way in New York City. We were finally getting homebrew shops in New York that gave people the raw materials they needed to create beer. So we had some small businesses. Um, Brooklyn Homebrew had just started up around like 09 or 10 out of their apartment in Sunset Park before they went brick and mortar. So we had the people, that's, I mean, you need the raw materials to really be able to homebrew. So we finally had a shop and a place you could get that. So you started watching homebrewing just taking off in a, in a really big way. And we didn't really have a lot of professional breweries in New York City. You know, there's Brooklyn Brewery, Chelsea Brewing, uh, Six Point didn't have any. Six Point was there, but they didn't really have any forward face. You couldn't visit it. So really had no way for the beer community to kind of like get together and go check other things out. So we started doing these tours where you go to different brewers' homes. I refined it to be three brewers, uh, four hours. And I, as time went on, we started refining it to being walking only just because mass transit can be a little bit persnickety when you're trying to herd 25 people around. Mm-hmm. But, but, it, <laughs> oh, yeah. but, even, yeah. but even early on, you know, we would do – I really want this to be as much of an investigation of New York City and make you get get outside your comfort zone. So we would do stuff like ride the Roosevelt Island tram. We would take the Staten Island Ferry, Long Island Railroad, things like that, just to make you kind of get outside your comfort zone. And, uh, and there, and th- these tours became a really big uh, – they became a big thing. And I was doing them every three or four weeks at the height, it feels like. Um, and what was really amazing about this is just that – a lot of the people that went on to open up and are continuing to open up New York City's breweries were all on the Homebrew Tour. So we had people like Anthony and Rob from Transmitter, the guys from uh, you know Finback, Strong Rope, uh, Single Cut, all the people from KCBC, um, Head Brewer at Gun Hill, Head Brewer Yonkers Brewing, all these people all around the region all were on the Homebrew Tours. And so we really had this amazing farm team, farm team where we were able to go to their homes, try their beer, then follow them on this natural progression to own their own breweries too. It was, it was a really magical moment and period in time. Cause I mean, it was just, you would just watch homebrew after homebrewer go on to leave the amateur ranks, go on to open up their own breweries. And then, and we were kind of, That's we awesome. were kind of along for the ride together. And, um, you know, I, I stopped doing as many homebrew tours because, uh, we had our first kid in 2013 and giving up your Saturday to go lead a bunch of strangers around New York city is really fun, but also <laughs> not an excuse that your partner wants to hear. So when there sure. is a tiny human that has big needs more so than getting a double IPA at some 
buddy's home in Bushwick. But uh, so we, uh, but yeah, we're actually going to be doing them. We're doing them again. We're going to start cranking them up again in uh, November. Um, my issue is like all the people I knew that were home brewers went on to open up professional breweries. And so kind of your roster as it were, it'd be like, it'd be like managing a minor league team. And all of a sudden everybody went to the majors and you're like, I don't know. I don't know where I can get any more players anymore, but you know, there's, yeah. there's we still have a really <laughs> yeah. thriving homebrew scene in New York city. So I've got some, this man, Brett Vanderbrook is going to be helping out and, you know, putting tours together, running them and doing that while I kind of help out in the back end. So we're still going to keep it going. There's still endless, Amateur brewers are going on to be professional every single day in New York City, it feels like. So we're going to keep them going on because I just think it's, um, it, you know, beyond beyond the, you know, drinking beer, which is great and all, they're just really fun ways to investigate, I think. New York City is nothing but a city of neighborhoods. And a tour like this makes you go outside your comfort zone and go check out new neighborhoods and meet strangers. And I think in this day and age, too, especially so at the tenor of our country where things are going, that seeing how people live, hanging out with strangers that may not share your beliefs and sharing beer together is a really great way to kind of find new ways of connection. So to me, it's, yeah, yes, I want to promote all these homebrewers too. And that's really important. But I also want to get people together in a way that, you know, a lot of people like beer that may not like the other same things. You know what I mean? And so by getting these tours together and having them in these intimate locations, like kitchens and backyards and these private spaces, that's really important for me. So I think that's part of the reason we're going to get it going. And I've always loved putting on events and um, we still do events. I think the events I try to do have always been focused on, um, um, you know, intimacy and access to unusual spaces and new ways of thinking about it. Like I always tell folks, it's easy to really get drunk, but it's hard to, you know, you can get drunk any day of the week on whatever substance you want, but it's, it's hard to create events that, you know, combine, combine beer fermentation in unique spaces with unique, uh, you know, unique places, spaces, people and ways you come out of there thinking, you know, thinking about the event as much as the, the things you consumed. So we've done events in the Krampenish Caves, which is an old 1850s Brooklyn brewery. Now it's a cheese aging facility. So we go 30 feet underground and eat cheese paired with beer. We've done like private events at breweries where we go behind the scenes and drink Zwickel pours and talk about what freshness means and why we shouldn't always be so obsessed with day one for the canning runs and things like that. And, you know, just trying to find unique ways to have it. We live life to have experiences, I feel. So I'm trying to find unique ways to create experiences for people around the idea of beer as well. Yeah. I like that, man. I, I like, I mean, just, you know, of some of the things that I've read of yours, your approach to things, um, of highlighting, you know, highlighting the positivity, highlighting the stories, right? That, that's that's what we focus with in this podcast and the things that we do is highlighting the stories of the people, right? I mean, because honestly, you put one of the top hazy IPAs from Arizona against one of the top hazy IPAs from, from uh, you know, Oregon or something like that. And they're great. They're both great, right? You're not going to say, you know, unless you're really whatever uh you're not you're not gonna say all right this one's way better than that but the story of the places are completely different and the people are what make make um make these things so so unique so the fact that you that you focus on that um and also the experience right i mean that this this uh, I, I just think life needs to be uh, filled with experiences right doing unique things like you said going at this into this you know 30 feet underground to in this unique location to drink like 
top-notch cheese and beer. Yeah. Like, I'm in, man. Yeah. Why would you <laughs> not like be? Speaking well, my life. Yeah, I think, too, what what I like as well is, you know, we, we all have expectations of what things will be. But what I like about doing some of these events and tours is you have no expectation of what it's going to be. So I tell people who you're going to meet on the yeah. tour. You know, I don't give bio. It gets brief bios, no pictures. And you just know where you're meeting up, but you don't really know where you're going afterward. So sometimes maybe you'll be dropped off into a weird neighborhood like Astoria, Queens. Maybe you've never been to Astoria, Queens, but all of a sudden you're forced to walk around and you're like, oh, look at this cool you know, Greek restaurant, or I didn't know this thing was here. So it just kind of makes the world a bigger place. And beer is not beer is a vehicle to make you realize the world's a grander place around you. And I think um, you know, we did that for the book launch party. We did that at Wild East Brewing, which is a brand new brewery opening up in uh, Brooklyn as well. They're also Brett was also a veteran from the Homebrew Tour as well too. But uh, yeah, we had it before they even opened up, and so I just gave people an address. I'm like, here's where the party's going to be, <laughs> and then you have no idea what the place is going to be like. And it's still like a partial construction site surrounded by fooders and other things too, but. It's, it's peeling it back a little bit and showing people that the hard work, the hard work that's going to go in so you see things at the very beginning and not the very end. And, you know, that's why I think for me with the stories, I'll get stories in a lot of the same way too that, you know, me talking about the usage of citra hops and this hazy IPA is great and all and how this tastes, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's fun and all, but you know, all you're doing is reciting the end of the story by that point. You know, you're giving, you're just talking about what the ending is like, you know. And so I want to find the other things too. What was it like when you went out there to go to Yakima, do hop selection? And then you talk about that, how hops used to be like hop sausage and all these different, all the different picking windows blended together and how this brewer now is really going out there trying to focus on, you know, early pick hops and what that means too. Then you talk about the farmers and you find out in farmers in the Yakima and like how much they rely upon sort of um, immigrants from uh, Latin America and Mexico to really help with the hop harvest and how, Yakima has got all these amazing Mexican restaurants. So then you've just unpacked something about just utilizing uh, hops in a beer, having a hazy thing to go back to the very beginning and seeing where all these other stories exist. And the beer in some ways is the simplest, the, the finished product is the simplest thing to talk about is everything else I really want to do. And once you start thinking about the beer world beyond that, I mean, that's where, I mean, that's where the stories are at, man. It's like, who's your draft tech that comes in there and cleans your lines every two weeks? How do you build the thing? I went to a bar in Manhattan once and they had to have 20 foot tap lines, I think, because they had to have their cold box in the garage. And what's that mean? And how do you go about doing that? And it's just, I think, I think all too often we focus on, we focus on just these, the easy things for us to grasp. It's easy to talk about the end product with the beer and the bubbles and the aroma and the flavor, you know, it's easy to talk about that or the, the chasing it down or whatever. But I want to find all these, all these other things too, or, you know, Talk about pastry sauce, but what's it like for Weldworks to really boil some of their beers for 20, 24 hours? Like, who's on the clock for all those times? What's it like? How do you manage your workflow? How do you manage the workflow situation? Like, who the hell is going to do, you you know, all these ways of unpacking things that, you know, taking something that seems like, oh, yeah, that tastes great, three stars, to being something where you figure out all the hard work all together. And that's that's what still kind of excites me about writing about beer in the world out there because it touches so many levels of of American society from agriculture to manufacturing and beyond. And it's not just it's not just happy hour juice, man. There's like so much more behind it, and like such a deep integrated national and international network that facilitates us being able to, you know, go out on Friday night and have a good time. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and I mean, everybody has different tastes anyways. Right. So like for someone to say, ah, oh, man, I, that, that was horrible. First of all, th- th- I mean, now we're digging into some of my pet peeves of, you know, someone say, oh, that beer was horrible. Okay. Was it horrible? Was it badly made or was, or do you just not like Ambers? Right. Yeah. Like what, what is it? Um, where, um, and, and I feel like w- with what you do, um, similarly to us is it's like, we tell the story, you go and try it. Like we, we, we paint the picture of like, what, what, here's all the stuff behind what these people are doing. Here's the story behind those beers and you know, what brought them to this place in that building. Um, and then it's up to you as the consumer for you to decide if you like it or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I, think, I think that makes it more approachable. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously it's, it's much more, um, uh, the, the breweries and the business owners love it, love that, that style so much more too, right? Cause you're highlighting, I mean, you're, you're highlighting the, the positivity and the cool things that these people are bringing to the table. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are some hard issues we have to face in the beer world. That's for sure too. But I mean, I try to approach things from sort of like a positive open mind, deep exploration of why things are happening and going from there too. And I mean, I think we tend to get a little, you know, and, and I think, you know, I'm I'm part of this too. Sometimes too, we tend to forget that a lot of the stuff that if you're deep into beer, that most people don't know, and that and like when you start talking about all this arcane stuff, it can be a little bit overwhelming and making something that may be obtuse, something they've never really. It makes it really hard for them to dive down into it. So I think my goal is always to remind myself that there's a lot of people out there that really, that, you know, have not been given the right information or not the right sort of pathways into understanding what's happening in beer. So my job overall. I feel is trying to find new ways and language and ways to kind of bring people into the world of beer in a way that makes them feel like it's um, welcoming and not frightening. I mean, anything's scary the first time you do it. The first time you go eat dim sum at a, at a hectic Chinese restaurant can be a little bit mortifying till you ruin, not mortifying, but it can be a little bit overwhelming to you learn like the right way right way of doing stuff um what was your first time ordering a drink like at a bar do you mean did you feel nervous that too did you know you could ask for stuff did you ever send food back at a restaurant i mean there's a lot of things in life that we you have to learn and be told it's okay to do and so i think that's really my job or one of my really important jobs in beer is to um you know find ways to for the 15 percent of america 20 percent of america that have already kind of gone down the slavery path really showcase new ways them thinking about the beverage they love and also for the other 80 85 percent trying to get them to really think about beer in a way that maybe something um you know get them to or even think about beer as something more than a commodity on par with um you know the block of cheese or the eggs you throw in your supermarket basket on the saturday morning grocery run yeah well, in and that's a perfect segue too, right? Be, in, into the the books that you've done, right? So, I mean, the the first book that you did was uh, *Brood Awakening*, and that was kind of the story of the that the you know you call it the third wave, right? The third wave of craft beer, yeah, um, that revolution, yeah. But then also, but then after that, then you get into um, you go to the complete beer course. So this is like a like in the description, it's a boot camp uh, for beer geeks, right? From the novice to the expert. So so. Yeah. What I really love about I will really love about what I've read of yours is it's very, very approachable for for everybody. Like there's something there. It's not so basic that the that the beer enthusiasts is like, ah man, that's that's basic. I don't 
you know, there's enough there for them, but then it's also very approachable for people who want to start to put their, put, you know, put their toes in the water. Um, yeah. So I, th- I think that's awesome. Yeah. It's navigating a pretty fine line on there too. I mean, cause you want to, you want to cater to people that already love beer, but you also want to show people that you can love beer. So it's kind of trying to appeal to both those demographics It's definitely a, a linguistic challenge when you're doing writing. You know, I think the best way to do that is to be authentic, to be yourself, to talk about information, not dumb, not dumb anything down, but maybe sometimes using analogies, metaphors, similes, your personal stories too. Not all of us could grow up and are fully formed experts at anything. You know, I think the only thing, you know, the only, yeah. thing, the only thing you're good at when you're born is pooping and crying basically. And so it's like, y'all have to learn how to be good at something. <laughs> um, and so it just takes time yeah. with anything in life. And so I think um, I'm not perfect. I have to ask questions all the time. I mean, I'm not the best like sensory. I don't have like a, a such a highly refined palate. I can pick out, you know, 0.002 deviation in this aromatic thing, but I can know what's good and I know what's bad and I know what shouldn't be there and what should be there. And that's because I kind of paid attention and asked questions. And I think that's been with um, all the books. You know, I've been trying to find that there's an arc so much as, you know, the first book I did was, yeah, the story about that. And then as I was on tour, you know, most people didn't really understand how all these styles fit together. And so this, you know, so complete beer course came out in 2013. I was really able to tell the story about how these styles fit together and allow you through the, through, you know, storytelling and also drinking along the way too, you could understand and see these neat evolutions of, uh, you know, Pilsner and how that like changed the arc of Munich, you know, the Munich Dunkel and the Munich Hellas arose and, how loggers really took over America and, and turned the world and on and on. And then the next book, the complete IPA, it almost came out a little bit too early because that was 2016. I thought, wow, we really hit the top of the wave for IPAs and not true. It's like that wave just keeps on building. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. and then, uh, you know, kind of like a riff on the homebrew tour, homebrew world. Cause I felt that people that are in, you know, Poland and South Africa and Australia and, you know, South Korea are also going through the same sort of brute awakening that we were going through and uh, going through in America. So I want to tell their stories and, you know, talk about ho- challenges of homebrewing and really have more stories about people and the challenges of brewing in all these different different countries. And then, yeah, I mean, for Drink Better Beer, I just felt that we're at a, we're at a crazy point right now where we're at the next, we have social media, widespread travel breweries popping up left and right, everybody hungering for attention and ways to separate themselves and the move toward local, meaning that, pardon me, move toward local, meaning that people just, you, you just can't try all these beers. It's impossible. Like even if I had samples from all 7,000 plus breweries in America, you can't drink all those. I mean, that's impossible. So what do you do? So, no. so you have to winnow it down and understand out there what's happening to make your own decisions. And so I think with Drink Better Beer is less about, I think just with the rapid turn and burn with a lot of these beer styles out there right now too, it'd be a disservice for me to be like, mm, you should really drink this small batch like uh, you know Arizona Wilderness thing that was only a brewery only release on this one Tuesday when you're yeah. stuck at work anyway. And so, yeah, <laughs> which is silly, but you can talk about these concepts within there too, and sort of how about sort of this idea of a uh, you know, be a great segue for the beer you gave me, like you no know, mixed fermentation and things like that too, and how. You can how by utilizing grapes and other things too, you can find new ways of expressing flavor, but also beyond that, you can find new ways of drawing in drinkers into the fold. And so I think that's what's that's what that's what I want to talk about for this book was really just about all these new 
new ways of commerce, new ways of uh, new yeast strains, all these things are doing and, and less about drink all five of these things and more about, you know, understand why these things are happening and let the people and the difference makers that are the ones doing this talk to them as well and let them tell in their own words about why these things are happening and how you can, uh, you know, really help, help navigate this world better. I mean, like it would be in a sense, you could almost call this like book drink beer better, but that sounds preachy and I hate being preachy, but I mean, it's just, but I think what, yeah. <laughs> what it goes back to is just a little bit of intentionality with what we're doing. We're, we're, sure. we're so fast right now with everything that we do. You know, it's, it's gotta, you know, we gotta download our movies in like one minute. We gotta go through the drive through. We can't wait for anything at all. But I mean, if we just, you know, if we just can spend, you know, a few seconds, you know, you walk into a beer store, you're like, oh, they've got displays in the window. Why is the temperature cranked up so high? Why is there no UV covers on the lights? And then you're like, oh, they don't really give as much of a shit as they should, you know, or maybe they don't know. And if they don't know this, what else don't they know? So there's just simple yeah. ways you can go about stuff that I think we don't always allow ourselves to do that just because we're oftentimes in this, we're both in a rush, A, and B, overwhelmed. So... How can you, and those are just two factors of modern life right there. So this book, in a sense, is really about slowing down, understanding, and knowing that we all start off places with our our level of, you know, connoisseurship or lack thereof. We all start somewhere, then we end somewhere else. I mean, the journey doesn't really stop on there as much as like the evolution of beer is not going to stop either. I mean, there's not a point when brewery is going to be like, well, made that, did a good job. I guess we're going to, you know, life goal accomplished. There's always these moments. Yeah. And so, and you know, drink better beer also goes to these breweries have been around forever that, you know, there's a constant refinement of Sierra Nevada, pale ale and other things too, that just because something is done and codified, there's, you're dealing with agricultural variables and crops and new techniques and equipment. So you can always do something better. And I mean, even breweries that we look up to as being best in the biz, they can always, they're always striving to be better. I mean, better is a very admirable goal across the broad spectrum. And I think that's what, that's what I really wanted to hopefully get across with this book. And it's just that, you know, be very storytelling. It's like, you know, you may think that, you know, you're born without your eyesight. That's a disability. You know, that's what we're told in society. It's a disability. But I talked to Dr. Hobie Wedler and Hobie basically born blind and then, you know, use this, you know, this disability as an extra special ability to kind of see things that we don't because we've taken so much information with our eyes and our eyes tell us everything, but our eyes can also lie because you can see the moon as he mentioned in the book. But what do you know about the moon? I mean, you can see it's there, sure. but you don't know anything about it. You can't, yep. you can't hear the moon. You can't smell the moon. You can, but you know, but you know, we've taken so much more with our um, nose and our tongue. So talking to him and realizing that, you know, shut your eyes, take things in for a second and almost something as simple as that can make a whole new world really open up to you. And that's what I wanted to, and also just, you know, make people think like why American society, we're always just, we want more. We want like triple cheeseburgers and crap and we want extra, extra, extra. And that's not always the way that we should, I think, think about things. I think there's ways for subtlety and nuance. And so I talked to people like Dr. Tom Shellhammer from Oregon State University, you know, talked to Tom. He's investigating one of America's like preeminent hop researchers, talked to him about these ideas. Like, why do we crave? You know, double dry hopped is now kind of like treated as like, oh, DDH must be amazing. And like, you know, it can create very great flavors in beer. But what does all that extra hopping actually do when you're dumping all that plant material into there? Can, can something be wrong? I mean, you don't just, when you want stronger coffee, you just don't keep on dumping in extra 
coffee beans or putting extra tea into there, isn't there a certain point where the balance tips over and things go out of whack? So you realize that, you know, adding all this extra plant material can actually, that hops have some sugars. You add too many hops in there. Sometimes you can restart fermentation, make a boozier beer and introduce off flavors like diacetyl and other things too. And so in this pursuit of excess, we've created something that's not quite so excellent. And so it's pretty, and, but in society, I just think we get told that more, more is better, but more isn't always better. More is different, and, but more doesn't always equate to be better. And so that's really what, so just telling, finding all these stories and telling all these stories is really fun, like really fun for me. And I think it's going to be really eye-opening for a lot of people that, you know, it's, because it's just a new way of, I think, thinking about what we take for granted, that you have this beer and you think, oh, great, like super fresh, canned on day one, it's going to be awesome. But like hops go through like all these hops in there and some yeast strains create biotransformations and the flavors have an arc of maturation and they evolve and change. And sometimes beers need like a week or two to settle into themselves and, you know, all those things. So that's what's really cool to me is just that the beers are always evolving and we as consumers are evolving too with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, once again, it's, it's, um, uh, it's for, it's a diverse group. It's approachable, right? Because this is some with, with so much, uh, and, and just to clarify, drink better beer is the book you put out that just came out a week ago, right? The 17th, about a week ago. Yeah, yeah, 17th, ago. 17th of September. So yeah, that just, uh, yeah. just dropped. This is the brand new one. God, another, yeah. another book. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, the, but that approachability of it, I don't know if approachability is a word, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So, but the, the, the approachability of the book is great because with so much going on with so many breweries opening up and, you know, like Arizona now has, so when I started this, there was about 60 or 70 breweries. Now there's like 120. Um, but, the, but there, it's a hot market too. So you get breweries from California, Colorado, Oregon, all around sending beer here, yeah. you know, get distributing here now. So you're, it's overwhelming. So for the beer enthusiast, it's overwhelming. So your book helps to kind of, kind of guide you through that, that, that chaos um, of what to look for. But it's also really good for a new person to be like, okay, you know, I really enjoy beer. Like I want to learn, I want to, I want to get better at drinking beer, right? Like drink better beer. Um, It's very good for that as well. Uh, Because just everything that, I mean, like you said, the the storage and and checking dates, dude, that's been the biggest piece of advice I give everybody. Like, dude, oh, you know, you're this beer guy now, Uh, you know, what, what advice do you have? And I'm like, number one, look at the dates. Like, that's the only advice I give. I'm like, look at the dates, right? Like, cause you go into a grocery store and you got an IPA that was, that was canned, you know, seven months ago. And yeah. so someone's going to drink that. I'm like, Oh dude, I hated that IPA. I'm like, well, six months ago was really good. You know, <laughs> but, but what's happening between the time that beer is made until the time it, it somebody drinks it. Yeah, you know? there's so, so many fa- being more, more Yeah, there's there's so many factors in that chain of command that kinda of get lost, I think, along the way too, that, you know, the person that gets blamed is a brewer. That's that's always that. The brewers are always like the fall they're always gonna be the uh, the person that gets blamed. But I mean, did the brewer maybe the brewer brewed a perfect beer, but the bottle shop put it out there in the window and so and so everything got really, you know, if it's a glass bottle, maybe things got skunky. You know, the introduce season introduces stuff. Maybe you don't know what happens. I mean, it's really the last, the last five percent is so important. Or maybe you're at a bar and you get something on draft, and the beer is, you know, served in dirty glassware with you know, bubbles on the side and no head and a cheater shaker pint, 
and then it didn't do clean lines. And so it's got a weird, funky off flavor. And you're just like, oh, yep. dang, that's not good. You know, two stars, knock it back down. And I mean, in a world where, you know, we're forced to rate things immediately, I mean, look, I mean, it's ratings, Yelp, they can be very helpful to, you know, the mass of public opinion can be great and all sometimes too, but also the public opinion can be misguided or driven by our own prejudices of, yeah, you're like Amber Ales. Like, I don't like Amber Ales. Like, so it's not very good. But I mean, why don't you like Amber Ales? Is it something against, you know, this flavor profile? And should you really be ranking something that you hate and won't give a chance anyway that you're prejudiced <laughs> toward? Yeah. So, yeah. I, and there's no, there's nobody that's, people like giving opinions. That's just a fact, as we can see by social media, anything else, talking heads that, you know, America is really good at giving opinions about things, even if you want them or not. I mean, people give me opinions. <laughs> well, I let my kid, I let my, my, my daughter is very adventurous. So I let her kind of like climb up on fences and we walk past school. And so many times she'll walk by like, oh, you be careful of her, blah, blah. I'm like, yep, got it. You know, <laughs> got it. You try not to be like opinions or like assholes. Everyone's got one, especially you. That's not the thing yeah. that you, it's a thing. I try not to break out unless people are really bothering me. But yeah, it's just, uh, you know. It's just, I think, arming ourselves to a bit more tensionality of looking at the world around us. Not something that's related to beer. This could be anything that we think of. You know, it could be music, you know, music, food, anything. We're just, we're so prone to snap judgments. And I think maybe this snap judgments and new shiny objects for us to kind of peruse and call our own. So that's uh, so all I want to yeah. do is really slow down a little bit. So we think about things. And I mean, this has cracked this Arizona wilderness, the uh, terroir project one with uh, some mixed culture ale with a, uh, Arizona grown Sanjio. I'm going to mangle it. Sanjio VC grapes. I, you know what? I was glad you said it and not me because I was I was going to mangle it as well. So San, Sanjio VC. Yeah, I think it's Sanjio VC grapes from uh, Page Springs. So Page Springs is a, a winery just north of uh, Phoenix, about an hour, kind of between Phoenix and um, Flagstaff. Yeah. I think the really fun thing about this too, it's just, um, it's look, it's in this bottle and we drink with our eyes first. I mean, uh, he tracks everything I talk about, Dr. Wedler. But anyway, so but you see this bottle, like, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting things that breweries are doing now is they're putting all this mixed firm stuff with fruit into clear glass bottles. And so you see this, it's got this like attractive, attractive reddish hue. And so you pick it up and, uh, you know, to the average consumer, they pick it up like, you know, it's, we still think wine is fan still a large perception that wine is fancier in America. So in this level, just from a pure optics standpoint, you know, this product stands toe to toe with like on natural, you know, natural wines. Looks like you can buy it from a natural wine from some small producer in whatever Washington State or something. It's just uh, if it has that look and the flavor too. I think has flavor points that people that may not typically that say they're not beer people, but they can understand with grapes and find new ways of uh, experiencing flavor together. And it starts a conversation, and we start a conversation. You can chip away prejudices, and so I think that's really important. You know, a lot of we had a big push toward wine infused, or sorry, grape infused beers, maybe you know, ten years ago, but it all fell apart. A lot of that fell apart as you know our seven fifty bomber obsession kind of gave way to cans, and so with yeah. that took down a lot of these bigger beers. And even you're seeing a lot of these bigger beers are, you know, like Revolution Brewing. Their Death Star thing is now in twelve ounce cans. Um, Firestone Walker put a lot of their rare stuff in the 12 ounce bottles or 375 splits. I mean, just smaller, more approachable serving sizes too. But I mean, stuff like, but that this, the, this glass see-through bottle, especially in our moment right now too, really communicates sort of, 
it communicates stuff to the drinker, maybe natural wines or wines in general that, you know, it's just fun, lively, a good color like that. It's almost in that rosé-ish hue people may like. Yep. So I think it's really, these are the ways you're going to get forward. You're not going to get forward by, you know, I think you need to find new intersections for drinkers to be able to bring new people into the fold. And, um, you know, this just goes back historically that we didn't always drink things that were in such tight little silos. You know, we didn't drink, you know, thousand years ago, we were all drinking like, you know, lager that was, you know, crisp and clear and golden and bubbly. Like things were muddy over this, you know, over the millennia. Things were muddy, like mixed, like honey and, uh, and grapes and fruit and whatever dried and got or whatever I like, got wet and got funky and got you drunk. I mean, we stuck with it, and so there's yeah. been a lot of. <laughs> yeah. So only now, I mean, we, but I, I finally see these sort of like barriers breaking down in American society a little bit too. That we're more willing than ever before to really see beyond, see beyond a single a single category. That it's not just beer, it's not just wine, but there's a there's 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 you know delicious new middle grounds to explore, and that's really. Speaking of something else I try to talk about in the book too is that, you know, breweries are evolving into beverage companies. And I mean, you see this in the larger scale with like ABI and things like that, but even smaller breweries too, these pushes toward hard seltzer, hard coconut water, hard tea, doing new crazy fermentations, mixing up with sake yeast and stuff. And I mean, it's really about yeast doesn't really, yeast is pretty happy as long as you give some sugar to eat. I mean, it doesn't really give a darn. It's like, yeah, way to go, Bob. Yeah. Apples today, cherries yeah. <laughs> next week. Yeah, whatever. Just, just keep keep this buffet rolling. So yeah, <laughs> so you just see all these new ways. I think of uh of exploring what fermentation means in the context. That so I'm all for this like crazy wild frontierless, you know, open frontiers future of just trying new things all together. I think because um, when you get too preachy and say the things should be a certain way, I think um, you turn people off. That. There is a sense to hitting styles according to that, but I mean, styles are always evolving too. And styles is a construct. I, I, I utilize them as kind of, um, you know, I, I, I try to use this analogy, like styles are kind of like a pair of sweatpants or something like that. And you know, you know what kind of sweatpants? Like, oh, those are my Pilsner sweatpants. But the thing about sweatpants, they can stretch in different directions all together and accommodate different sh- shapes and sizes and scales. And so it may not be something that can fit in a lot of different, um, uh, different variables and that's what that's what styles so important from a conversational standpoint so we know what we're saying and know what we're discussing you don't want to be like mm, you know a beer with a little bit of a you know that style of beer with a little bit of a toasty complexity and a little bit of noble hop bitterness and it's like i'll just say like vienna lager and you know what that means i mean by and large <laughs> so it's it's linguistic shorthand so we don't have to go through and uh Dive things down. But, you know, I think we're going to see a continued evolution of the industry and things are going to change. And I mean, I just want things to slow down. So I want us to slow down, like, you know, just think a little bit more. You know, that beer is going to be there if you wait three more seconds. But just think about some other stuff before picking up or just new questions to ask or feel empowered to send something back if it's not great or express your opinion. I mean, we'll say whatever we want online. But in person, it's a lot harder for you to, you know, express like what doesn't give you pleasure or joy. Yeah. Yep. Well, and what do you see? Um, two things. Number one is I don't know if it's because I've just, you know, over the last year um, gotten really into the wild ales, but I feel like the wild ale, mixed fermentation uh, or you know, spontaneous fermentation, mixed culture, all that stuff. I feel like that's kind of um, making a resurgence. I don't want to say resurgence, but, but it's, it's, I feel it's growing. 
Is, is that, you know, someone that's been in the industry almost 20 years, uh, do you see that? Or is that just something I haven't saw because um, I wasn't into it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I see it growing. I mean, there's availability in the marketplace too and what people in your backyard are able to do. And you see expansion of, you know, as breweries expand, they're looking for new fermentation challenges. So they're opening up and doing different arms. Like Arizona Wilderness, I don't think, did a lot of, um, you know, they, they started doing more spawn stuff. I think they're doing some, like, the cool ship stuff. But, you know, that, that's not something you can just open your doors always and expect to make a business on. So you almost have to – so what you're seeing as yeah. the maturation of businesses, and then the maturation of businesses in tandem with sort of this uh, desire to explore new worlds and frontiers of fermentation, I mean – See more. Also, we people know a bit more what they're doing now than they used to. I would say, and more to the point is, I think what happened with a lot of um, quote unquote like really acidic beers is that they followed a lot of similar arc with what happened in the uh, IPA world. You know, if we think back a decade ago, it was all about God a thousand IBUs. That beer must be crazy good. You know, bitter, more bitter, great. And so we thought about bitterness as a mark yeah. of like <laughs> that was our defining mark, and you know that's gone away now. And now it's almost quaint in some senses to get these sort of like purely bitter beers. And it's like, oh, I remember that. I like that balance. Huh, what a concept. So I think right now you're seeing <laughs> but that same thing with the same aesthetic overload. That happened a lot in beer too. So what you're seeing now is where people are understanding deafness and balance and structure. And there's there's layers too. And I think with you know kettle souring, it's got subtractors, but it's also a great vehicle for creating like, you know, crystal like a bell like a sharp sharp acidic note that sings well with fruit so it's found its calling in that realm as well so i just see there's we people know what they're doing a bit more too and i do think you know wild sure. yeast and new yeast strains and things like that are kind of be the final frontier I keep on saying frontier it's not even the word they will be <laughs> all these new yeast strains will be a point of differentiation that's going to be needed as if you can all buy the same hop strains or hop varieties malts whatever you can doctor your water up to be similar to anything in the world you know having your own unique yeast can really be something that can set yourself apart in a really in a really fun compelling way that goes back to people want it's local it's local yeah. and so you know terroir local backyard something that's specifically you it was and we, we want to rally around our breweries in a local way and i think we we still do in a huge way but um there's they some of them have lost a little bit of their uh as we're all rushing to imitate the same styles, I think there's been a sense of like a little bit of a loss and kind of what it means for these cultures to grow up. You know, you go to Montana, there's a ton of Scotch ales and that's because, you know, Kettle House Brewing, I think we had Scotch ale early on. So you see Scotch ales are endemic over there too. And those are the really fun, quirky things I love seeing. Why did this happen in these parts of the country? And now you see something online, you want to imitate it and you want to drink it. So it's being made in your backyard in the hazy IPA really hit at the same point of this local on-premise revolution, buy your own cans directly, mobile canning revolution. And so I'm just curious how far that's going to go. So I'm, see what's next. I mean, this, uh, I don't know if the, the lines of humans to line up and buy or even show up to buy $16 to $20 four packs of beer, of 8% beer is eternal. Um, we all go through generational shifts and we evolve as humans too with our taste buds and taste preferences. I mean, God, am I eating? I'm not eating the uh, pepperoni and mustard sandwiches of my youth every single day anymore. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Once in a while, though, still right. <laughs> it's every once in a while, it's still good. Yeah. So yeah. So I think um, we're at a very fascinating point where the industry can take a couple different directions by going to see. I think see people um, 
hopefully go back, probably going to embrace some more local style, like some more traditional styles in that sense as well. You know, Pilsners, Lagers, we see a lot more of those too. You know, we almost had to run away from them as a brewer. The brewers almost had to run away from them in the very beginning. So you had to separate yourself from, separate yourself from all of the uh, mass market lagers. But nowadays, I mean, everything is so blurry that it used to be craft versus craft, but nobody even, that, that, that battle's over. Now it's just kind of, what are you, what are you brewing? What tastes good? What's the right price point? All these different metrics that we didn't care about. Nowadays, I mean, you know, beer, craft beer always commanded premiums, smaller, you know, smaller scales, higher prices, more expensive ingredients, etc. But now you're seeing stuff like Founders, $15, 15 packs. That's no different from, you know, that's no different than a lot of other mass market stuff that's out there too. And so sure. these are, yeah. these are fascinating new worlds. And so what are you going to vote on? I mean, you're not just voting on flavor anymore. You're voting on kind of um, a brewery's ethics or lack thereof, their labeling, their approach community. And so there's these whole other ideas of layering and of what it means to be a consumer for a brand. And I mean, if you like this brewery and they do something terrible on social media, should you still support them to give them a chance? I don't, you know, all these things you have to consider to yourself. Do you really want to wear that shirt in public and then have to deal with the, you know, do you want to defend them or that? Or are you just going to, there's, there's so, it's so much more complicated. <laughs> it's so much more yeah. complicated. <laughs> it is like, and you don't realize that when, at least for me, I mean, you've been doing it for a long time. So, I mean, I've been doing this for three years. Um, so for me, it's, it's like, I, you know, every once in a while I get like a, wow, man, there's, there's more to this than, than, you know, there's, there are these little clicks within the, within the industry. And there are, you know, I looked at it first as like, oh, there's no drama in craft beer. It's great. You know, it's like anything though. There's going to be, there's, there's so much more depth to it, uh, which I think makes it so much, so much better. It makes it so much more um, well-rounded, when you, I guess you could say. When you got a thousand people fighting a fight, it's a revolution, you know, when you've got, yeah. you've got hundreds of thousands of people in this industry. I mean, it's like, you know, you're going to have factions, you're going to have things and beliefs and everybody's got different agendas. Not everybody got in it with the same sort of um, revolutionary ethos, you know, by this point, it's almost like you're, you've, you're joining, you're joining some of the wars and even there is just kind of, um, it's like minor skirmishes back and forth now. I mean, and finding yeah. new ways to do it. But I mean, there's always going to be fighting. I mean, there's always that comment, like, craft beer is 99% asshole free and yeah, largely true. But in anything else, I mean, there's still going to be assholes in anything you do yeah. in any, yep. in any industry. I mean, there's not, you know, even Red Cross has like issues with, you know, I think it was a Red Cross had issues like where their funding went after, I think one of the for tragedies. And it's like, if you can't believe in the Red Cross and other things like that. What can you do? <laughs> so, yeah. so you know, it's just that. And beer is, Beer is complicated. Beer is messy, but beer is also wonderful. And beer brings us together. And I think, uh, yep. well, I think that's really that's what that's what we need right now is finding ways to bring us all together. Um, less arguing, more sometimes you know, more putting putting down our phones and picking up a couple of beers and sitting together and just talking about ourselves as humans. You know, I will talk about beer forever with random strangers they want me to. But you know, you can ask me about how my bike ride was and like dumplings and like you know. What's it like raising a kid in Brooklyn? It's kind of hard. I don't know. There's, yeah. I think, um, I think too. We also that we wear beer as sort of an identifier, but there's also ways we can identify with each other. You know, I think beer should be the start of the conversation, but it doesn't always have to be the driver of the conversation. But I think beer is really great at opening doors to conversations and going and seeing yeah. what takes us from there. Yeah. No, I agree with you, man. I I, I agree with you, and and uh, to kind of 
you mentioned raising, you know, raising your daughter and, and, uh, raising kids in, in New York. Um, and you mentioned your daughter earlier being adventurous. It's one of my favorite things on your social media is, uh, your daughter's awesome, man. Like she, she does like silly faces behind like your beer pictures. And it's like, it's cool to be able to see you like travel around New York, you know, travel around New York city and, you know, have her enjoy the the trip as well. Yeah, no, thanks so much. Yeah. It's been, it's been funny, you know, I, I wish this were some sort of like large scale plan to utilize my child <laughs> for profit and gain or even like my ventures, but I don't know. I want to, I, I, we live in a big city for a reason and there are options, opportunities here to explore things. You know, right now in 45 minutes, I got to leave my house, get to the beach or get to Times Square. And you know, that's just such a diversity of options. You know, you can do it. I can go to Chinatown and have some more dumplings or I can go out to Elmhurst Queens and like, chow down on some of the best Thai food this side of Thailand. And it's just uh, the options out there. And I want her just to see both the world, that the world exists at your fingertips in New York City. And that there's people that are, you know, not like you and they're still living in the same town as you. And that, that to me is really important. Yeah. And so, you know, I try to be very, very cautious. You know, my kids, she's got opinions now. So if we go to a brewery, then it's got to have, you know, outdoor space or big space where we go at super off hours. We go to like five boroughs brewing where they got Candyland, and she gets good. So we'll go to Sunset Park in Chinatown and she'll get a pocky at the supermarket. Then we go to the playground up the hill. Then we will go to five boroughs and then go to, she gets to play Candyland and I get a drink of beer and we get to hang out together. So finding a way to, you know, connecting in an adult sphere. And I'm not going to like dive into the anger over kids and breweries or whatever. I mean, to fight for another yeah. story altogether. But I think <laughs> if you scout out beforehand and God, I mean, you know, the kids, they've got little kids games. They're open at noon. Um, you're pretty much going to be okay. I think they understand that as well. Yeah. And if they want you to leave, I mean, they want you to leave and that's okay too. I mean, it's a business overall, but I just want to, I don't know. It's been funny. I didn't, you know, cause so much of the tap room culture has really only taken off in the last, you know, five to seven years in the country in such a huge way. And so we're all kind of navigating this world together and uh, just happened to have a kid in 2013 when things started taking off. And so it's been weird, like interesting to people utilizing me as a role model. Like even somebody last week at a book event was sort of like, Oh, you know, I can't wait to you know, I have a kid. Hope I get to take her around the city as much as you do to all these fun places. And I was just like, you know, and that, that to me is just showing it's, you know, it's kids are not just something you have and you forget about that. There's ways you can both enjoy something that people sometimes think that kids are the end of one life, but it's the opening up of another one. And it's, yeah, you're not going to go out to four in the morning if you got to wake up at seven or six, but um, you can do a lot of different things during the day. So I just want to show people that you can have, you can have fun because it's not just hindrance. And, you know, there's until you have something, you have a, until you get a dog, until you get a dog, you're never going to understand what it's like to go to a dog run, you know? Or what it's like to bond with other people over your morning cup of coffee like that in weird times of day. And so, but for people that are going down that path with kids stuff, I try to help people out and give them advice, which is, you know, you're not going to be prepared for anything. But the, the only thing you can do is, uh, was it No Woman, No Cry, Bob Marley? The live version is the yeah. exact tempo to rock your child to sleep. And that's like, if you have a hard time being a metronome, and also it's like the five S's versus uh Harvey Carp is this thing where it's like shushing, squaddling, and all these other things. And like, it's a way to get your kid to stop basically having a meltdown when you're, because uh, yeah. you're at the hospital. Then they're like, you have to go through a debriefing before you go. And basically, debriefing is like, here's the baby. 
don't shake the baby. And they're like, you know what we just said about don't shake the baby? Like, really? Don't shake the baby. And like, wait, did we say don't shake the baby? Don't shake the baby. You're like, I'm not going to shake a baby. What sort of monster <laughs> am I? And you get this thing that just shat, yeah. shat everywhere and is crying and you're covered with urine and you're just like, and you're like, I would like to shake something to quiet it so I can at least gather my thoughts. So you realize that. But I mean, it's yeah. just, uh, so five S's help you get over that thing. It's like shushing, swaddling, blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah. Anyway, yeah. That was, I, yeah. a bonus, bonus, bonus parenting advice from Josh Bernstein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it, man. Love it. I was having a beer while you were explaining it as well. So it was like, it was all very, very connected. So, um, well, dude, I appreciate this, man. Um, let me ask this, and I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but but what do you do? You have any predictions on on where craft beer is going in in, in the U.S. right now? Like, do you have? Yeah. Where do you feel things are moving? Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more. You know, we're going to see like minded businesses join forces together. You're going to see a lot more crazy collaborations, like you know Ben and Jerry's, New Belgium, stuff like that. You're going to see a lot more of those things as breweries try to find new ways to tap into that eighty percent. 85% that may not be customers already. So yeah, I think you're going to see beer pop up in places. You're going to be like, what's going on here? But I mean, Carvel and Cap Carvel Ice Cream and Captain Lawrence partnering in a Fudgy the Whale style stout. I mean, Carvel fans are going to go crazy for it. Other things too, you've created a new fan. So you're going to see a lot more of that. I think too, um, I'm tracking on low calorie hazy session IPAs right now. Um, that okay. session IPA is basically flop except for all day from founders. We're going to see a lot more sort of like lower calorie hazy IPAs, like in the 4% range, 4.5% range, try to take up the mantle where session IPAs kind of failed. Um, Why do you think they failed? Um, like what, what, what? That lack of balance. Okay. Lack of balance. It tasted too much like hop water. If you want hop water, get hop water. Okay. So, okay. Um, but yeah. when you have hazy <laughs> stuff, utilizing oats and wheat and other grains that may, you know, have lustrous full bodies it can go a pretty long way to like helping out that sort of body issue as well too. So I think that would be that. And also just continued evolution of breweries and the beverage companies, man. Yeah. You're going to see some crazy fermentations coming down the pipeline. Like uh, I did the cover story from vibe this month. Um, sort about the changing nature of beer, where we're going, but it was like harpoon harpoon bought clowns, harpoon out of Massachusetts bought clown shoes to have like their edgy craft beer division. They partnered with polar seltzer on the Arctic summer line of hard seltzers um, they've got like a beer hall. They sort of like a cider company and they have Dunkin' Donuts collaborations and all this other crap. And it's just like, it's wild. Wow. So it's like all these businesses yeah. shoehorned under one umbrella. So you're going to see that. And also you're going to see a lot more breweries opening up satellite tasting rooms as a way to kind of, um, as the shelf space gets more crowded, you're going to see people that are like, I don't got to produce beer here, but I can sell beer here. And that's going to be pretty key. Pretty key. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So just having tasting rooms where there it's not a production facility or anything. It's just just for somebody in a neighborhood to just and, and I'm sure that that would help with zoning and not like getting open. Yeah. Right? If you're not making the beer there, you're just serving the beer that you're making somewhere else. That's, that's yep. And you get to walk out of there with a uh, couple four packs of beer you pick up on your way home. So you're going to see a lot of that too. I think things are going to even more local and you know more defined business plans. And uh, I just did this uh, story for the New York Times, which will be out in the paper uh, the first week of October about this like push toward foam and service. And I think you're going to see people putting them. And as things in tap rooms become more popular, you're going to see service. When you're treating yourself like a bar, you better have service like a good bar. So you're going to see hopefully better service come down the pipeline with attention to detail on glassware, foam, 
all these things that tend to get kind of pushed by the wayside, but you're going to see a lot more of that, I hope. Yeah. Nice, man. Well, I'm excited, dude. I'm excited, Josh. I appreciate you taking the time, man. This is, this has been great. Uh, so anything else you want to add? I mean, is there anything that we covered a range of things? I mean, the book's out for sale now. Uh, you can get that on your website, uh, Joshua M. Bernstein.com. Yeah, right? totally. And I'll send out the book in a banana mailer with my signatures or yeah. And I will literally go yes. to the post office with my two, get my two legs and go there and they'll be like you again. I'm like, yeah. And then I give them the thing and I'll dutifully pay my 379 media mail rate on, on the book and then walk away. But yes, <laughs> or you can buy it on whatever Amazon, Barnes Noble or whatever um, awesome independent bookstore nearby carries it. Awesome. Awesome, man. And then Josh M. Bernstein at, uh, on your yeah. uh, Instagram. Yeah. On, well. on the socials. If you want to find me, ask me questions, happy to, happy to answer and be as open as possible, you know? Yeah. And all that good stuff too. Nice. Yeah, that's about that's about it. We're traveling around the Northeast a little bit. Hope to make it back out to the uh, make it out to the West Coast, Southwest sometime uh, next year. I made it to New Mexico back in uh, back in May for a little bit, and I was really struck by really just um, the unique approach to IPAs for breweries like uh, Bosque and things like that, and just sort of this um, this different like Cumbre, just see these different approaches and what you're getting like this. This juicy, you know, tropical aroma, but not juice, but clear with bitterness. So it was like this really unique one that's really tuned, I think, for you know, hot, dry days and cool nights. So it's really interesting to go out there and check out that approach to IPAs too. So it kind of got me interested in seeing what's happening more in the Southwest too. Yeah, dude, there's some really cool things happening. Uh, I mean, I, I don't get outside of Arizona too much. Uh, I mean, we get some New Mexico beers. Uh, Lacombre is awesome, man. They they've been making beer good beer i feel like since they open um but yeah in arizona there's a lot of things going on as far as like you know arizona wilderness uh with their uh you know with their mixed fermentation spontaneous fermentation there's some other ones like 12 west grand canyon brewing company doing those uh but there's also like there's a water conservation um initiative north of phoenix where this company it's it's they're growing malt so they so they had farmers switch from alfalfa to, to barley huh. uh, to preserve the river flow and now they're creating malt for um for breweries and i'm pretty sure arizona wilderness at this point is nothing but sanagua malt um but it's cool man it, it's really cool to see how beer is getting involved um they're doing there's like a water reclamation program in scottsdale yeah. uh they're doing a beer competition for reclaimed water and i just think it's cool how beers is, is the centerpiece of a lot of things that are doing really really good stuff for the environment and and i see a lot of that in in arizona well, you know i mean it's crazy you don't really think about it until you dive into it as well you're like it's like it's like eating oysters in a sense like oh oysters are delicious but the more oysters eat the more the people are going to grow the more they are for cleaning the waterways too it's like the more beer that you buy from a brewery the more malt that these people can grow and the malt is good or the grain is great for this and you know have maybe a good hardy cover crop for wintertime to filter the soil, provide great crop rotation to which will in turn prevent runoff and, you know, prevent the waterways being polluted. And there's all these trickle down effects, you know, farmers don't always grow things because of, you know, an affinity for soybeans, we'll say. It's not that, but, you know, they, they, they oftentimes will grow stuff what's going to sell where there's a market for it too. So we, if we prove as beer consumers, there's going to be a market for these things. I mean, hopefully people plant more of these things too. And, you know, What's good for you on a Friday night is good for the environment too. Yeah, 
Yep, exactly. And when I when I did the episode with Sonagua Malt, um, Chip from Sonagua Malt was like, I said, so how can people support you know this this initiative? What are ways? And he's like, drink beer. Yeah, <laughs> he's like that's the that's the that's the easiest way to support. Uh, you know, drink the beer made with Sonago Malt. So, um, awesome man. Well, dude, keep up the good work, dude. I'm I'm a huge fan. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, people listening to this, you gain some new fans as well. Um, I, what I love. On your website is um, there's a whole. I mean, you got everything on the website from, um, you know, where you can buy the books, but you also have a lot of your articles, and there's a bunch of articles on there. So, so if you're listening to this, uh, go to joshuambernstein.com. Check out all these. I articles. write a lot of words. Um, I write a lot of words. It feels like I don't. I, yeah. I don't think I'm doing a lot. And then I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I work for. A, and Bob, contributing editor, and Bob, Smithy Daily, wine enthusiast. I do a lot of men's journals, beer coverage, like this month's uh, cover package on Brewpub this year, October. Uh, I do some beer writing for, you know, as much as they allow me, beer writing for the New York Times and um, New York Magazine in the City and like a whole bunch of other, whoever wants to hire me, wants a good, yeah. that wants a good story, I will go out and write that good story for them. Love it, man. Love it. We'll keep up the good work, dude. I, I, uh, like I said, big fan here. So, all right, thank um, you so much. Appreciate yeah, you, you uh, taking the time out. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you know, it's always important man. to shine these spotlights on um, on parts of the country that don't always get there. You know, not a lot of beer from Arizona escapes Arizona. So, I think oftentimes too, it's really hard to, you know, get a sense of what's happening there. So, I think efforts like you and what you're doing are really going a long way to really showcasing. It's an easy way for people to tap into tap into a scene they may not have a chance to really drink their way through. Guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. And as always, thank you for your support. Rating and review on iTunes always helps the ego and uh, also uh, rankings on iTunes to get more exposure for us and for Arizona beer. If you do a rating and review on iTunes, send us a screenshot, uh, go through social uh, direct message or Eric at tap that AZ show us your review and we'll send you some swag. Also hopped up network is a network of independent craft beer podcasts across the country. We are part of that network. Go check them out. Hoppedupnetwork.com. Find yourself some new podcasts to listen to all about beer. So listen to that. Check it out. Stay awesome.